Hello, welcome to Book Chat. I'm Carl Halliker, and I'm pleased to welcome our guest today, Dr. Patricia Ann Masters, who is the director of the undergraduate program in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at George Mason University, and the author of today's book, The Philadelphia Mummers, Building Community Through Play. Patty, welcome to Book Chat. Thank you for having me. Um, why did you decide to write about the Mummers, and what is your connection to Philadelphia? Well, I decided to write about the Mummers because they were an interesting example of community, and because I'm a sociologist and we study community, and because one New Year's Day I was up in Philadelphia and I saw the parade and I couldn't take my eyes off of it. I couldn't imagine why these people were doing this. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I have a, a very weak connection to Philadelphia, perhaps. My mother was born in South Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. She married my father, who was in the military, and moved away. And we would come back and visit my grandmother, who lived in South Philadelphia for some time. So there's some connection. That was important right. when I was talking to the mummers. Right. So actually, when you were writing this book, you were not living in the area. Then, no, right? I was not. I was commuting from Virginia. From Virginia. Excellent. Uh, now, as a sociologist, what perspectives do you bring to writing about the mummers than, say, uh, that a historian wouldn't? Well, I don't think that I think that it's important not to make distinctions between uh, academic fields when you're doing this kind of work. The purpose of this book was to write about the life world that the mummers inhabit. That is, what did what are their values and their connections to each other? Why why do they get together? What drives them to produce a what's a hundred and six year old parade? What's their history? What are their backgrounds? And I think sociology tries to make the connection between people's history and between what is going on in their lives to try to capture the larger trends. Excellent. And so that was, that was, so that's why a lot of this book has history in it because right. you can't begin to understand a community till you know where they started from. You need that framework. You need a framework. Right. Uh, your subtitle is interesting, Building Community Through Play. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by play in this context? Well. Play is it's an interesting kind of concept for sociologists because initially I didn't think about it as play. I thought about it as a structured community. Right. Play is an experience that is freer, that allows people to experiment with identities, that allows them to exercise their imaginations, and allows them to go beyond what they are into something quite special. And so I think that the mummers create a unique world that goes beyond their ordinary worlds to play. Can um, I? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, go on. Uh, I was going to say, because you, you, you draw, you say there's a connection between play and community formation here? I think that the, the experience of play is so intense and so special that sociologists and some theorists that have looked at play um, assert that through the intensity of the bonds formed through, through uh, parading or through playing, people want to repeat that experience. So they set in, into motion structures to repeat that experience, and those structures become what we think of it as a, as a play community. So the mummers are a play community. Mm -hmm. That's their purpose. They're not instrumental in any sense whatsoever, except to do their parade. Mm -hmm. Now you spent five years researching writing the book. That's an impressive amount of time to spend on any particular subject. What, what general impressions can you share, at least from the standpoint of where your views changed from five years when you began till five years later when you finished? I didn't know what they were about. It was one of those, those kinds of experiences where the, the uh, guiding question was, what's going on here? 
it wasn't a, many people think of sociology as something where you have a research question and you set out surveys and forms and all of that stuff. But this was really a, a thing about what do they think is going on, not what I thought was going on, okay. but what do they think is going on? Okay. And it took five years to figure that out. Well, <laughs> uh, now, now, before we go further, I should ask, who are the mummers and, and why do people become the mummers? Well, the Mummers Parade actually is a working class parade that began in the mid-19th century in Philadelphia with separate ethnic traditions that coalesced into very, very large processions. In 1901, they were called the Shooters then, and that was because they shot off guns in the neighborhood to celebrate the New Year. Very interesting kind of transition. Mummery is actually an Irish tradition of house-to-house -house visiting and entertaining. And in 1901, when the Mummers were invited to come to Broad Street, they actually um, became the Mummers through some kind of transformation or just the terminology changes in the coverage. And so they became this public group instead of this private neighborhood group. And today they are primarily working class, though there's been some middle class uh, change. Mm -hmm. uh, they are, uh, they began as white ethnics, but the parade has always been multiracial. And they inhabit South Philadelphia mostly. So uh, I would say they are, that's how you would describe them. They become mummers through their connections to their neighborhood and to their families because these are multi-generational linkages in the parade. My great-grandfather went up the street in 1903. You know, when I was four years old, I went up as, as you know, little, little Bo Peep, and mm -hmm. these are guys. Um, and all of those things that, you know, when you would look at this man who was 70 years old, and he'd say, I've been a mummer for 67 years. Mm -hmm. It was hard to believe until he explained it was three years old the first time he went up the parade. <laughs> and are those bonds as strong today now than they were, say, 30 years ago? I mean, I mean are today's... Youth, are they, do they buy into the mummers concept as, as much as their parents might have when their parents were young? Uh, I think that there's some mumbling that there's always change and that the uh, younger generation doesn't take it as seriously as we did, but I think every generation complains about that. So it's hard for me to say that. I see very strong linkages remaining um, because in the course of their producing the parade, they become intimate friends and quasi-family. And so the, the uh, play is one bond, but the other bonds become family bonds. Okay. And so I think they're very strong. Very good. Now, you're, you're talking a little, a little bit about the history, but is there some, uh, you know, uh, just standout points in a Mummers Parade history we should be familiar with? Well, I think the biggest day was when all of those little immigrant groups came up to um, City Hall for the very first time in 1901. Uh, up until then, they'd been rowdy people who were parading in the neighborhoods and getting out of control. And so I think the city decided it was going to celebrate the new century in 1901. And in order to do that, they invited this gang of rowdy artists up to Philadelphia to perform. Part of the reason the city did that was to get them all in one place. And it was easier to keep a watch on the goings-on than it was in the neighborhoods. So there was a social control thing working with that. And the mummers were willing, willing to barter the freedom that they had to sort of wander around the neighborhoods for the ability to be on this wonderful stage, to become famous. And so I think that that 1901 was the pivotal thing. Once they had gone on to this wonderful, vast public stage of Broad Street and City Hall, they became a tradition. They got invited back, and they thought that was really kind of cool. And in addition to that, the city offered them money, prize money, 
So they became a competitive play community. Once they became a competitive play community, all of their presentations and all of their art became much more elaborate. So it became a can you top this game between all of the clubs as they were going up the street and the head pieces got huge and the back pieces got huge and the production values got more and more sophisticated because they were performers. And I think that if you look at the uh, parade tradition into, the, into today even, that what you see is there's always an attempt on the mummer's part to reflect popular culture even as they're following their traditions. So the back pieces become different or it gets too expensive to have ostrich feathers, so you substitute other kinds of, of um, scenery. Golden slippers and golden shoes are no longer you know, fashionable, so you decide that you're going to take sneakers and gild them, and that's what they do. I always think of them as a gilded, gilded sneakers <laughs> tradition. Uh, but what's important about it is the competition within this community has caused it to become a, a recognized folk art. And they themselves have really evolved from, you know, amateurs into very close to professional qualities in some instances, not all instances. But it's unique. I mean, there's nothing like it. Interesting. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, you talk about a concept of two Philadelphias and their impact on the parade. What do you mean by that? Well, the, the two Philadelphias I was talking about initially go back to that notion of um, the working class Philadelphia, South Philadelphia, when it was mm -hmm. marginal to the bigger city yeah. before incorporation of all of the counties into, the, into greater Philadelphia, which happened in 1859. These were immigrant areas. These were poor people. They were coming into South Philadelphia, which was um, unpaved streets and poverty. And one of the things that they began to do was to create cultural institutions, um, clubs and all of that stuff. And these clubs became the basis of the, uh, of the clubs that later produced the Mummers Parade. The other part of Philadelphia was all those rich people in Center City, the old city people versus South Philadelphia, the established people and the people who really had brought something into the city. So the, the, old, the, old, uh, the South Philadelphians were strivers. Mm -hmm. They wanted to be better. They wanted people to not think they were a bunch of rowdies from the edges of the city. They wanted respectability. And they evolved into uh, performers, partly to win that respectability and respect. Interesting. Uh, what would you describe as the mummer's golden age, if, if there was such a thing? I don't think there really is one. Mm -hmm. I, I don't. I think that if you look at the parades of the 50s and some of the newspaper coverage, it seems to suggest that the crowds were in the hundreds of thousands, and many mummers don't agree with that. Um, I, don't, I don't know how you count a crowd, because one day when we were sitting on the edges watching the parade from 7 o'clock in the morning until 8 o'clock at night, uh, what we noticed was there was a constant influx of people as the different divisions came up the street. So how you count that, I don't know. Uh, the parade was very popular in the 50s, right up through the age of television. And now I think it's, it's lost some of its uh, crowd appeal because the, the neighborhoods coming up Broad Street themselves have changed. Mm -hmm. And if you conceive of the parade as coming out of South Philadelphia right onto Broad Street, then as that area becomes more commercialized and everything else, things do change. Now, you, uh, do, you were personally involved with the... Uh, the uh, parade Golden itself. Crown. Golden Crown. Yeah. What, what did you do? We were marshals. Marshals. 
<laughs> Marshalls yeah. carry scenery up the streets, and mm -hmm. I, I was trying to spend as much time as I could in the clubhouse. So, mm -hmm. I, as soon as school was out, I would rush right up from Virginia to Philadelphia to be involved in the last throes of getting ready for the parade. So, I learned how to do costumes, and I learned how to do put sequins on costumes, and. I remember holding a strip of sequins up one day and saying, don't you think this is a bit too much? And they said, no, there's no such thing as too many sequins on a mummer's costume, you know, put them on. So I burned my fingers on the glue gun and hauled stuff up, up to City Hall and just observed. And Golden Crown was enormously receptive to that. They, gonna, became, they, they welcomed you? Did they, you know, they, they were, they, Bill Burke, who was their captain, mm -hmm. said, you know, let's make, make the professor feel at home. And after a while, with doing this kind of research, they forgot I was there. Nice, very good. So they didn't. Uh, can you tell us about the, the structure of a mummers club? How does that work? How many people are involved? What kind of different duties they, do they do? Uh, it's variable. Um, Golden Crown had 75. Some of the string bands have several hundred by the time you put in to play all the costume makers and all the musicians. Um, I'd say it's highly variable. And, and it can be as many as a few hundred uh, the, the two as small as 50. And they, they're organized into four divisions. You mm -hmm. know, the fancies who right. have the great floats and mm -hmm. the string bands who are the best known. And the comics who now come up the street in the thousands being little wenches. <laughs> and, and the fancy brigades, which are sort of the youngest and I think the most contemporary group of mummers in terms of what they try to produce. Uh, and what do they try to produce? To you if they well, I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. in, uh, in one of the parades I observed had a thing called uh, Superheroes on Gotham Street. And I, I think it was probably South Philly Vikings. And this was one of the last times that they brought all the scenery up the street before the, the brigades moved to the convention center where they now do their, they now do their shows. And they had this scenery that included um, the spray-painted, I'm sure that's not the technical term, Gotham City that was 20 or 30 feet high with the, the uh, thing of, you know, mm -hmm. the Lady Justice and all of that stuff, and balloons. And then they used techno music, you know, which was right. very, very highly pumped up music, yeah. and dancing and all of that stuff. And if you looked at this particular presentation, what you saw was all of the darkness of the latest Batman movies and all of the cultural, the popular culture symbols enfolded into this because they had not only Batman, but they had Superman and they had um, the, the heroes, you know, the, the Power Rangers and everybody was included in this. So uh, I think that that is what I mean by contemporary and it was primarily that very modern music and the choreography that was was quite fascinating to me. Very sophisticated too. Very sophisticated, very uh, very upbeat, very uh, up tempo. You know, very much um, new. You know, nothing sweet, nothing cute about right. it. Very edgy. Uh, Patty, a part of your book which I found interesting was you talk about the rules that govern and constrain the parade. Yeah. What are some of those? Well, one of the first things that happens when you set into motion competition is you set into motion competition rules. So play itself, which begins as such a free, open kind of process, becomes constrained by those rules. And in a way, you think to yourself, or sociologists often say, well, that means that it destroys the spirit of play, right. okay? Because it's no longer something that's as freely chosen. But the, the competition actually 
um, is quite playful. And for the mummers, the, the idea of play is still found in the creative aspects of it within the constraints of rules. Uh, one of the things that I think is very interesting is that there's sort of a bifurcated tradition here. One is the parade itself that goes up to City Hall, and the other is the Two Street Parade, which occurs on, on uh, 2nd Street in South Philadelphia, and which really represents a going back to the neighborhoods, all holds barred kind of parade. So I think that the mummers managed to be restrained and constrained in the setting of Broad Street, but many of the clubs go back to 2nd Street where they revisit what used to be the open spirit of the parade. And I think that that's intriguing because it sort of undermines the idea of controlling play. It's sort of a way of getting around the rules. And so I, I found that uh, a ritual, a sort of an anti-ritual, yeah, if you will. And I, I just think that's interesting what you're talking about now. You get to the point where play doesn't seem like play anymore. Right, right. Um, it's really interesting because there have been some theorists of play who maintain that organized sports are no longer play because mm -hmm. there's a profit motive and all of those kinds of constraints. And I was talking to somebody, this goes a little bit afield from the mummers about that, and he said, no, he really thought that when you were playing in sports, you were still playing. Now, I don't know if that's true if mm -hmm. you're making a million dollars, but I do know that for the mummers, even though they work, which is also a contradiction, very hard, to get up that street and there are hours and hours of being at the process of getting ready to play. That's still part of the play experience for them even though it's hard work. Right. Uh, which is interesting, isn't yeah, it? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. so there's, it's, it, there's almost a sort of a, uh, a blending of work and play because as they're working, they're envisioning what it's going to be like to play. And they can revisit that experience again and again. So I, I was struck by the freshness of the experience every time to them. And, and one time I was taught, when I first started doing the research, I was talking to Bill Connors, who was a very wonderful gentleman who had been with the parade for 50, another one of these 50-year people. And I started telling him about all of my very elaborate theories of play, about, oh, isn't it wonderful that it builds community? Isn't it wonderful that it does that? And I remember Bill sort of looking at me with this sort of raised eyebrow look and saying, well, that's nice, but we do it because we're having fun. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, fun. You know, I couldn't quite envision what that meant in sociological terms. Right because I was so busy looking at the outcomes of what was happening rather than the process of playing. Yeah. And so the, the five years took me the time to sort out what it meant to play. Right, right. interesting. I guess one, one person's fun is another sociologist's play. I oh, guess didn't I, mean. even, I didn't even initially have a category for it. Right. I thought, fun, you know, yeah. and, and Bill's attitude to where it was, well, that's nice, but that's not what we're about. That may be what you're about sitting outside of the community. Right. But when I wrote the book, uh, I had in mind that I wanted to talk about what it meant to the community, how they experienced play. And so that I did about 80 different interviews and I did a lot of, uh, of nosing around in the community and just tried to blend as many of those elements into it as I could. So that if the, if the mummers, I didn't want it to be an academic book that they mm -hmm. wouldn't recognize right. themselves. It was right. important to me that if sure. a mummer read it, they would say, yeah, that's what we do, that's who we are. So I'm hoping it'll be accepted that way. Important, and you you also talk about. And I guess this is the, I guess this is a good trend that the parade has become more inclusive over the years. It ha well, the the parade has always been multiracial. 
from the earliest days, uh, blacks paraded in the Mummers Parade. Up until 1929, they marched as string bands. In 1929, uh, they went to a different role, and I have never been able to quite tease out why that was. Part of it may have been the Depression, but from that point on, it seems that the black brass bands accompanied the, the uh, parading units up the street, but they were paid. They were no longer competing as bands. They were paid uh, performers within the parade uh, tradition. But they were always a part of it. Mm -hmm. And um, now, of course, they have black parading units with good timers and some right. of those things. But, you know, the accusation has always been that this is a white, a white man's parade. Right. And there's never anything in the history that I have read that indicates that that's the case. The banjo is a black mm -hmm. instrument. Mm -hmm. The uh, cakewalk was uh, some of the traditions right. in the early parade came from the southern traditions. But, so. but it, it seems like if, if African-Americans weren't, uh, were allowed in a parade, it seems it's like in some aspect by being paid, they were excluded from the uh, play component. Well, to some extent, I think that, that you would argue maybe that they were uh, excluded from um, the competitive aspect mm -hmm. of it. I, I, this was one of the hardest parts of the book for me to write. I came back last summer and actually spoke to a gentleman who had been around at the time of the integration of the parade. And he said that, that it was fine, you know, that they enjoyed, they, they had different purposes. Yes. And mm -hmm. as a matter of fact, the brass bands were part of an Elks tradition band uh, that was alive and well in Philadelphia in the, um, the African-American neighborhoods of mm -hmm. Philadelphia. So I kind of think that they had their own traditions that were going on simultaneously, and that some of the brass bands I had understood actually would go down to New Orleans and compete in those kinds of categories. But they were present, and they're, they're now present. Women came into the parade in the 70s, mm -hmm. and there wasn't nearly as much hubbub about that. They just sort of slid in because the mummers needed some fresh yeah. blood, because women do well. Right. Now, are there other ethnic groups becoming involved now? Um, it's hard to say. Uh, at one point, there was an Asian group that paraded mm -hmm. with one of the fancy brigades. Uh, I think that one of the problems or one of the challenges that faces the mummers is how to make the parade more reflective of the, the different groups that have come into Philadelphia. Because as a sociologist, I see a lot of correspondence between Fiesta and what's going on in the parade. And I think that they're a natural kind of coming together. But because the parade has gotten so elaborate, it's hard to have the knowledge base that you need to comp compete right. as a new group. So some of the boundaries and the competitive rules they put around play and the standards that they've imposed upon play make it difficult for a new group to come in. Um, and I think that's a real challenge because I think that down the road you're going to see the city getting more and more resistant to privileging the mummers as a group. So I think they'll, I hope they'll work it out. There's always a parade. Right. Well, that's a happy way to end that there's always a parade. Uh, Patty, uh, we ran out of time before we ran out of questions, but thank you so much for joining it's us. It's been a pleasure. It's, it's been great to hear about a Philadelphia institution that we all uh, have been familiar with and have come to revere for so many years. Our guest today was Dr. Patty Patricia Ann Masters. Her book, The Philadelphia Mummers, Building Community Through Play. I'm Carl Holliker, and you've been watching Book Chat.